Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what? What are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Welcome to Trailblazers. I'm Ricky Swanell, and today we are going off the field with one of our leading sports administrators. She became a very familiar face during New Zealand's co-hosting of the 2017 Rugby World Cup and even more familiar now in her role as CEO of the ICC Women's Cricket World Cup, which will start in March next year albeit slightly delayed, but we're finally almost there. Andrea Nelson, CEO of ICC Women's Cricket World Cup, welcome to Trailblazers. Kia ora, Ricky. I must actually first say it's a bit of a miracle that you and I are ever getting to do this together, given I recalled when we first properly met, which was on a very hairy bus ride in Rio, daily bus ride. Yeah, I, there were several moments I thought, well, this this lady I'm sitting next to seems lovely, but I do hope I see my children again uh, one day. <laughs> But it all worked out oh, fine. <laughs> we got there. We, we survived. We enjoyed the Rio Olympics. And you gave me some very sound career advice on those daily trips as well. Um, but let's let's talk about you. Let's talk about how a uh, PE dropout, I think you've described yourself as that, becomes one of our leading sports administrators. How does that happen? Yeah, look, uh, my family asks me that on a regular basis. It's a matter of a lot of, a lot of hilarity that the least sporty member of the family uh, has made a career in it. Look, I think for me, I started in music and media, um, really loved kind of rock and roll. Uh, that was sort of an, an art, theatre, those sorts of things. And I, I wasn't really even a sports fan, to be honest. I didn't particularly watch or enjoy it growing up. It didn't feel like it was for me, Ricky. I didn't feel in my school environment. I wasn't encouraged to do it. I never got the enjoyment of it. Um, it came to me when I started working on the London Olympics. And actually, I picked it up as a gig, thought it'd be an amazing experience to be part of an Olympic bid. But seeing firsthand the kind of inspirational power of those kind of big global sporting events really personally inspired me. And I joined a um, the Ladies Football League team. We started bottom of the league and made our way up to winning the premiership, actually, three years in, which was a glorious, a glorious achievement. But I, I found it addictive. And for me, as a parent as well, it's really big. You know, I see the power of sport to change lives for the better. It's changed mine. And um, I'm really proud to have it as my career. Yeah. Yeah, so where did you grow up? And, and you obviously, you, the rest of the family are into sport. Yeah, look, I, that probably would take a 45-minute podcast in and of itself. Uh, but I actually, um, I, I was born in Blenheim and then I moved to a small town uh, in between Napier and Wairau called Roponga. I was the only Pākehā at my uh, little rural primary school growing up um, and lived there and then Wairau and then eventually moved to Auckland. And so I went to high school in Auckland um, at Westlake Girls. So, yeah, I moved around a lot growing up uh, and uh, seen lots of different sides of New Zealand. 
Yeah, what that's that must have been quite a formative experience, a formative way to grow up in very small, rural, Māori New Zealand. Yeah, look, it, it feels a long way away nowadays, and I haven't been back, I must say, to Rauponga for quite some time, but... Um, it, it definitely was. It was a, you know, I didn't have television really growing up, you know, lived lived on a farm. I think, you know, going into the town to go to the post office was quite an outing. So um, definitely learned to entertain ourselves. Um, but then I moved to the North Shore of Auckland. So I think you call that adaptability, right? Uh, moving from one to the other. <laughs> yeah, that's a, must a massive culture culture shock mm. to, to go from tiny to the big smoke and then a big school like Westlake Girls as well eventually. Yeah, absolutely. I think the joke I used to make was that I thought Country Road was where I lived rather than the name of a uh, <laughs> place where I might buy clothes. But um, <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, um, yes. So, so you consider yourself an Aucklander? Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I, I lived in Auckland um, from then, lived overseas 15 years and then came back to Auckland. Wouldn't see myself living anywhere else, even through this lockdown, uh, even through, uh, you know, the year that we've had. I love Tamaki Makoto. I just think it's a, it's a beautiful city. Having the beaches and the big city vibe combined for me is a, is a winner. Yeah. Here, here. Um, I'm sure already our listeners and, and those who who do know you can hear this energy and enthusiasm that you seem to bring to everything. Where does that come from? Have you always always been that way? Are, you, are your family an energetic, boisterous, and enthusiastic, lust for life family? Yeah. Look, at Christmas can get pretty hectic with the uh, with the eight grandkids as well, and my four siblings. It can it can certainly be quite quite raucous, and a, a few songs are known to be to be belted out. But I do know my little boy, actually, um, I never really thought thought about it until my youngest son started getting school reports. And, and, and it was a lot of, um, he's very enthusiastic and he could learn to channel that energy uh, into things other than chatting with, to his friends. And I thought, oh, hang on. Oh, that's me. Yes. <laughs> so I think I probably always have been a bit like this. If it's any consolation for him, I once got, and I still remember, a school report, I think maybe when I was 13, that said, Ricky is an extrovert. This sometimes gets in the way of her schoolwork. Yeah. <laughs> Birds of a feather, Ricky Swinnell, together. Yeah. Although I, I think I've got less. I'm, I think I've become more introverted as I've got older. <laughs> anyway, But it's, uh, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because is it yeah. that, uh, I actually think about this, is it because I'm enthusiastic and therefore I get excited about what I do or am I just really excited about every project I've ever worked on? And I don't think I've ever had a job that I haven't been really, really passionate about. And so I think, you know, possibly if I was working in insurance, I might not bring the same joy de vivre. But, uh, you know, it's a privilege to work in sport and global events. And I think you should be, you know, you should be positive and excited about that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's, you, you mentioned your career path. You said your music, media. So, where did you go after school and, and to the sort of and then heading overseas to to end up where you are? Yeah, look, a, a circuitous route, I think, is the answer. So, I did a couple of years at university and then went to go work as a journalist for a while, and then went back to university to do a postgraduate in journalism, through which I realised that probably wasn't my bag, really. <laughs> <laughs> didn't really have the didn't really have the uh, the the ability to kind of stick and do those those really difficult things the death knocks the you know yeah. the hard journalism it just wasn't me so um yeah and then I I travelled moved moved to Australia picked up a few kind of communications gigs and then landed on the Olympics so it's been a bit of a circuitous route from arts and theatre to sport but uh, happy where I landed. You were a DJ, a, mm. a radio DJ as well. Let's yes. not forget that. I guess I used to work at uh, BFM for many, many, many years. Um, so I actually did the breakfast show news 
well, back in the day when Jeremy Wells actually was on the show with Mikey Havoc and then um, wow. did, did a current affairs show. And, uh, yeah, look, it wasn't um, nothing of the quality and profile of scenes, Ricky, but, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> a, lot, a lot more indie rock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as you said, you, you went to London. Was that just to go and, and do the OE um, and experience that side of life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my family have heritage from the UK and uh, it was always, my grandparents talked about it as home and it, it never actually occurred to me that I wouldn't do that. Um, so we were living in Sydney, my husband and I, and we're running out of time on the um, on the working visa timescale. So we just jumped on a plane and headed over and uh, did an interesting year working for the Department of Work and Pensions, actually. Possibly that was one of those jobs I wasn't truly inspired by. But it did mean that I got to travel up and down the UK on, on the lovely rail system and visit some cool places and then got the chance to work on the London 2012 bid. I started on the same day as uh, Sebco took over as chair. So it was a pretty amazing experience. Wow. Did you just sort of fall into that side yeah. of it or you see it come up and thought, you know, this is something I'm going to have a crap for? Yeah, look, when I'd been in Sydney, I'd done some work for a government department that did work with the Olympics and also with Rugby World Cup. So I had some connected experience. And I think also just people were, you know, I'd been in Sydney in the year 2000. So I think they assumed I worked on the Olympics and therefore I would be <laughs> But you know what it's like. If you're a young, enthusiastic, competent Kiwi in London, opportunities are there for you. And that's really what happened to me. I picked up, took a huge pay cut from work and pensions to go work in the junior job on the Olympic bid and then ended up leaving there nine years later with two children. So you were working at, did you work on the comms and and the communication media initially on the bid? To start with, my job was to convince East Londoners that they wanted the Olympics there. It was a really complicated piece of land, if you remember, in, in East London where the stadium is. It was on the boundary of four borough councils, massively underinvested, huge socioeconomic issues, real language challenges. And so we were kind of doing the planning applications, getting the business support. So it was a really fun, interesting, challenging period. And then when we won the bid, I moved into doing a bit of a jack of all trades role, really looking after, I guess, everything the the London 2012 Games said, whether it was through media or on our website, through social media, which started in that period yeah. while I was there. Um, you know, uh, what we said and how we said it was sort of sat in my in my remit, which was really cool. Yeah. Remembering back to those, and I remember because I, I think London won the bid, and if I'm right, it was the next day yeah. the terror attacks happened there? Yeah. That must have been, and I, and I remember this because I was due to move to London in about three three months' time after those attacks, and I, well, I did, um, but that must have been, or what was that like? Yeah, look, it was pretty unforgettable, Ricky. I mean, there were two things. One was, so we ran the event when we when we won the bid. We weren't expected to win either, so we'd said to the police, oh, maximum 5,000 people will be there. It'll, it'll be pretty quiet. And we ended up having to shut down all of central um, central London for that announcement. So it was a massive celebration and party. And then, yeah, the next morning as we headed into work and I was manning the media desk, we started getting calls. Is it, you know, are you worried about London's transport ability because you've had this massive train breakdown? And then as the morning progressed we worked out what happened one of the staff members of the bid team I'd worked on at London Development Agency was involved and she she lost a leg in the um oh. in the bombing and you know so it was really close to home we were trying to track down the family and friends of uh, the contingent that had gone to Singapore for the bid um, and then yeah the next weekend the same production team that delivered the massive celebration in the same location exactly one week later did the first of the memorial services so um 
Yeah, look, I think um, Ken Livingston gave a speech the next day, which I still have as one of my favourite kind of political speeches where he said, you know, watch us as we mourn our dead and watch us as London welcomes new people to the city and, you know, and, and shapes our future. And I felt a real Londoner on that day. And the, and that kind of, the net, the whole journey right through to the delivery of the games, you know, was more poignant having been there right at that moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, give me goosebumps. Um, let's, let's have a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the delivery of those games. You're listening to Trailblazers on SENZ. My guest is Andrea Nelson. You're listening to Trailblazers on SENZ. My guest is Andrea Nelson, who is the CEO of ICC Women's Cricket World Cup, coming up not too far away. But we're talking about her career in sports administration and working on the London Olympics. Uh, You'd worked on the bid, and then basically the world came to London. There was scepticism. I remember it was the, the riots happened not long before, but then these magnificent games occurred. What's your favourite or do you have big recollections from those days? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a special time for me. And, you know, having worked on a project where during the bid we used to take people to this desolate wasteland and say, you see that pile of fridges that's going to be the Olympic Stadium. And we used to take people up an old person's home. They'd stuck a glass viewing tower at the top of it and you'd kind of point out that you know that that tire factory over there that's going to be this and so to actually be there I remember for me the moment that really brought it home was the week before the games I was in the media center and I had a call from my friend who was in the um, athletes village saying you need you need to get here now and so I jumped on one of the little carts and scooted across and it was the New Zealand team being welcomed and there was I hadn't felt to be honest I'd, I'd lost my connection to New Zealand a little bit it'd been a long time of living in the UK and I'd Become felt pretty British, but um, I was there in that moment, and they, and they, they did the haka, the team, and suddenly I looked around, and there I was where the fridge pile had been, and behind where the power pylon was, and it was actually happening. And I must have I bumped into Garth Bray, I think it was, who was there reporting, and I was just in yep. absolute floods of tears, <laughs> unable to communicate. It really, it really came home. And and the other one, Ricky, was having the privilege of, in fact, one of the coolest things I've ever done in my career was write the script that the broadcasters read when the opening ceremony happened, which meant that I got to be part of Danny Boyle's sort of uh, team. Um, right, you know, at the outset when they pitched the concept and had the Queen jumping out of a helicopter and we all went, oh, yeah, whatever, and it happened, yeah. you know, and it was it was such a glorious celebration of everything that's good about British culture. And then, you know, with what happened after that in the UK, you know, it does feel like a really special moment in time um, to have been part of. It was an amazing ceremony, amazing ceremony. And then the the Paralympics as well, because, you know, the the stress of the Olympics is over. You're really, you know what you're doing. You can relax and and enjoy the Paralympics. And the closing ceremony of the Paralympics, I don't know if you remember, had Jay-Z and Coldplay and Rihanna. It was just this Mm. massive concert. And it was just this incredible feeling of, you know, this is nine years of my life, a great party to say goodbye to it. And then um, on to the next thing. Yes, yeah. So nine years from from bid to to the end of the games. And did you have both your kids in that yeah, time? Yeah, I took two maternity leaves. Um, so my youngest was one at the opening ceremony. Um, not recommended. I'll be honest with you. Not recommended. <laughs> <laughs> but I had fantastic parental support. So my my parents and uh, also Simon, my husband's parents, came out to help look after we Louie during that period. And my sister actually, she came in and was there during the Olympics, got some free tickets and did some babysitting. Cool. So yeah. No, it was pretty cool, actually, to be part of that. And to have the kids having been there, that's really amazing too. 
Yeah. So they're British passport. They're British passports holders, wouldn't they be yeah, too? Yeah, no, we all are. We're all we're all good British citizens. Oh, yes. But um, haven't been, yeah. haven't been. Have, oh, I, I went back for the 2019 Cricket World Cup, but other than that, I haven't been back. So you said you 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 were a general dog's body. Did you? You must have had a specific role or title or something, though. Yeah, I had some of the most strange job titles I think ever. I think there was one which was chief editor, which I quite liked. <laughs> I don't really know what it meant. And then editorial head of editorial services. Look, it was it was very much I think. Um, when you're in an organisation for that long, you become the person that knows things. And that was sort of what my role was to a large degree. So I, I ended up being, doing a bit of the website content, press conference content, spectator comms. I became kind of the place where jobs were given where there wasn't anywhere else to uh, <laughs> to pass them on to. It was a fantastic experience, yeah. When, when you look back to that now, how do you think that those roles and that time and that event have set you up for, for where you are now? Look, I think um, when you're involved in something as big as the Olympics, you, even no matter how senior you are, and I did, you know, I was on the senior leadership team of that organisation by the end. But you're only ever a small cog in a massive, yeah. a massive machine. But the great thing about being in comms is that you're part of you're part of every part of it. You get to kind of see how how the sausage is made to a degree, which is really cool. So that really set me up with a good understanding of, I guess, the mechanics of global sport. You know, what is a how do the federations work? How how does a venue work? You know, and a real fascination for that as well so um coming to New Zealand it was a bit of a culture shock to be you know quite a big cog and quite and quite small machines and the other events I've worked on but working on the Olympics is an amazing amazing grounding yeah so what brought you home what why, why did you come home in the end yeah the two kids and my my parents and my husband's parents you know wanted to wanted to kind of be part of that family and we knew if we didn't do it then we would never do it um, you know, we had really acclimatised to being to being British and to living in the UK, and so I kind of fought it. Actually, I, I, I we'd made the commitment to come home, and I did try a few jobs elsewhere. But in the end, it was, and I'm glad we did. It was the right thing for our family to come to come back to Aotearoa. Do, did you come back? Were you coming back to any specific role or anything like that? Or you just were like, we'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah, yeah. So we 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 spent some time with my husband's family up north, and then just found a job. So I landed at Auckland Council actually. So did a brief stint there, and then jumped back on the event bandwagon. Yeah. Did it feel small? Did it feel small coming back to New Zealand? Which is sometimes why we love it because it's so small and everyone knows each other and everyone's connected, but at the same time, it's so far from everything. But I think the really strange thing about coming home is uh, the, there's New Zealanders that leave and there's New Zealanders that stay. And, you know, when you come home, I think there is a period of acclimatisation and you realise that actually, you know, had you stayed, you'd probably have a better understanding of how everything worked. And it takes a while to break back in. And it's the advice I give to everyone when, when they come home is, you know, just take your time to work out. How, how it all fits together because um, you know when you're when you're in the UK you, you're in a different kind of environment there's a lot more opportunity and the scale generally is just so much bigger whereas here in New Zealand you know there, there's less great jobs and uh, you know and, and and people coming home take a while sometimes to land into them. So you said you, as you said you, you did did your council stint did your time with the council and then got back and on the events bandwagon and I love that term because people who do events it is like that. It is one to the other to the other. Do you love that that side of it, to, or that finite of doing an event, or are you ever going to settle down? Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't say I love that part of it. You know, like I do have a family and a mortgage, and uh, I've, you know, I, and I think also. I probably wasn't going to do this most recent event. This is one that, you know, the bigger cause was what really inspired me to take this on. I'd like the opportunity, as I had in the Olympics, to be somewhere for a longer period of time and really kind of... But the great thing about events is that they're just outcome-driven. It's an unforgettable and 
uncomparable way where you just bring a whole team together and you're focused on one joint outcome. You're there for a good time, not a long time, and you've just got to make stuff work. And that's pretty, pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the ones you, you've done since before this this current one with with cricket with the cricket World Cup uh, under twenty football in twenty fifteen. Yes. Uh, then you, you worked with the comms team at the Rio Olympics for NZOC. That's how we met on our our Rio bus ride to rowing every day. Um, and then probably the, the most recent, well, the most recent and certainly the most successful of those, the twenty seventeen Rugby League World Cup. What made that such a, a unique, successful event? Yeah, look, it was a fan, it was it was brilliant. It was an amazing, amazing event. I think the real turning point actually, and sometimes you find that through through the not so great stuff, fantastic opportunities come. And you know, for us, it was actually the Kiwis were just not in great shape, unfortunately. And you know, the Warriors weren't having a great season, and there wasn't a massive groundswell of support for the New Zealand team. And we were there, sitting there with a campaign and a whole program which is really Kiwis driven and about uh, shortly after I think the Anzac test in Melbourne when uh, you know well we won't need to dwell on that um, we, <laughs> we thought well look let, we need to look at what we're doing here and so I had a really fantastic staff member um, Samoan guy and, 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 and another friend we sat down and really looked at what is the success factor of this tournament it's actually the Pacifica communities of Auckland and South Auckland. That's where we can really drive something unforgettable. So we spent so much time learning, meeting the key people. I was at Mangari Markets on Saturday morning selling tickets for cash. You know, we would we 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 sold tickets kind of person by person, group by group through churches. Um, and it just became this incredible celebration of national cultures and in particular the Tongan community. I mean, it was unforgettable to be part of that experience and you know I, I I remember saying to the Tongan manager at the end you know all we did was provide a stage for those fans and the fans created the event and it was um you talk about spine chilling moments for me it was in Hamilton uh Samoa and Tonga were, were facing each other and it turned out hadn't faced each other in New Zealand and rugby league I think for a long long time anyway and that the, the, there'd been a little bit of media around tensions and there'd been a little bit of kind of there'd been a bit of excitement on the streets of South Auckland I don't think it was as bad it was as it was presented at the time but there was a lot of media hype about it um and uh the two teams we brought the captains together um and and they had a bit of a chat and instead of coming out and doing their challenges really aggressively they walked out together knelt and prayed in a circle and then stood up and did the challenges and that moment to me and you know, 100 metres final of the Olympics pales in comparison to that feeling there at, at, at you know, Stadium Waikato. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, it was. Um, you're listening to Trailblazers with me, Ricky Swanell, and my guest, Andrea Nelson. We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to SENZ and Trailblazers. My guest is Andrea Nelson, one of our leading sports administrators from the London Olympics to the 2017 Rugby League World Cup and the 2022 ICC Women's Cricket World Cup. But um, let's talk a little bit about, I guess, the the space of, or the place of women in sports administration uh, in the boardroom. We, we talk about it a lot in decision-making positions. How have you seen it maybe change or maybe not change, particularly since, say, that 2017 to now um, in in the spaces that you're in? Yeah, look, I think uh, one of the things I do in my spare time is that I'm I'm in a volunteer role as a chair of Northern Region Football, which is the amalgamation of Auckland and Northern Football Federation. So um, that's really interesting because I I joined that um, probably about just coming off the back of the FIFA tournament I worked on, and I was the first woman, I think, 
on that board. Um, there was a lot of basically people talking about the results of the Prem game on the weekend. It was a, it felt like an environment that wasn't for me. I didn't really understand my role in it or or what what value I could add, and I kind of sat there, but dumb and mute for the first year which is unusual for me as you might have picked up um and and you know moving forward on that you know managed to kind of get my get my head around the did a whole lot of studying and learning about governance and now yeah chairing this organization which is we've amalgamated two football federations we're focusing on kind of you know changing the way that football is delivered in Auckland building equity you know and that's become being possible because of fresh thinking and fresh thinking comes when you have people who are not just the old stalwarts of the sport and you know there's, mm. there's a role for the players the ex-players the you know the legends of the game the stalwarts there's a huge role for those people but there's also a role for for fresh fresh perspectives you know I'm lucky enough to have my chair at the ICC Women's Cricket World Cup, be a, a true trailblazer by the name of Liz Dawson, who was mm. a CEO, first female CEO of the Australian Rugby League Club of the Adelaide Reds, I think. Um, you know, huge trailblazer in the sports sector and, you know, has built a career now helping grow female governance in sport. And I've seen firsthand the changes that that's, that's seen, you know. Suddenly you don't feel, probably in the first time in my career when you're at the board table, you you do I do feel like it's a place... It's a place I have a place at, you know. It's a, my voice yeah. is, is valued there. And I think it's really exciting for young women growing up, you know, wanting to build a career in sport um, because those opportunities are there that never were there before. Yeah. Yeah, because I just think that was so obviously, so I was the opposite to you and that I loved PE and played all the sports and all of that. I knew that I was never going to be an athlete mm. of any description, but I wanted to be involved. And so how we can show girls in particular who are sporty, or not necessarily like yourself, that there's a really great career in sport in lots of different ways. And I wonder if we're starting to see that coming through a bit more now. Yeah, I look at my staff, you know, from the Women's Cricket World Cup, and there's a huge number of them are young women who, um, you know, have huge careers ahead of them in the in the sport. There's the opportunities are there. And I think what's really fantastic is that slowly but surely the opportunities aren't stopping at that kind of junior manager level. You know, you're starting to see more and more people rising up to the chairmanships, the CEO roles. And, you know, I think I was probably a little cynical about that as a young person. I I had a kind of, well, I don't want to be a woman in anything. I'm just a person and I'll be judged by the value of my own actions. And and someone, a, a, a woman that I worked with at Rugby League actually Joe Coleman is an incredible sports administrator herself, pulled me aside and said, do you think, Angie, you might be being a little bit selfish when you say that? And don't you think that you could possibly be helping other people? And, you know, I think when once I put that filter on it, I thought, well, actually, I don't know what opportunities I didn't have because I was a woman. So, you know, you you help clear the path for, for for the next generation, as Liz has, and, you know, as I hope I can do as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I understand that I just, I just want to be seen as being really good at my job, not because I'm a woman. Um, but yeah, it's just, but I think what what we do have now, and what I, what I see in New Zealand is that the the cohort of women like yourself, like Liz, Karen Smith, Joe Coleman, as you mentioned. I mean, gosh, I'm just rattling off names. Are incredibly supportive, and there's lots of well, there's lots of drinks to be fair. <laughs> there's the odd rosé, um, but I think you know the truly mind blowing thing for me, and actually we had a level three step to catch up with the big four which is um yep. the affectionate name for the uh the women's cr- cricket rugby football world cups plus um the iwg conference so the four uh, ceos or tournament directors we get together 
and have done over the last couple of years. And that camaraderie and support, I don't think there is an equivalent for for a male CEO or a male, you know, someone growing their career at the same level. And, and I think the advantage that gives us to be seen to be bigger than each individual part, which is really massive, but also to learn from each other. And, you know, myself and Michelle Hooper from Rugby World Cup, we've passed the baton to and fro a little bit as it comes to MIQ planning and how we stage our events, but also, you know, working with um, women in sport to just grow the profile of the event. That collaboration is something special. And um, I think it is uniquely I think it is uniquely female as a as an attribute in terms of business and um, something I really enjoy bringing to sport. Do, do you feel like we've got past that um, stage of, of the women almost being pitted against each other? Um, that because there could only be one, and, and like I've had, I've had someone say, "Well, are you the new so and so?" I was like, "Well, no, she's still there, and she's doing something different, and we can both be doing it." Well, I mean, speaking to the famous, famous Ricky Swinell and the incredible oh. interview you did over in in, uh, in Tokyo with the uh, Black Ferns, which has been one of the most global viral things ever, but wasn't it incredible to see the commentary team that Sky sent to Tokyo? You know, that wasn't just one token lady, uh, you know, sitting on a panel, and I think more and more it's become socially unacceptable to have that kind of thinking. Um, we're not there yet, I don't think, um, but I think we're well on the journey. And I feel, you know, I keep saying the word privilege, but I genuinely do feel really privileged to be in this moment in time, you know, because I've had opportunities that women before me may not have had, but I've also mm-hmm. got the chance to help continue that journey, which is which is really cool. Are you, and we will get on to talking about the tournament coming up um, shortly, obviously, but are you starting, are you at this stage where you start to think what's next, given that your job will be finishing? Well, your job's actually gone on a year longer than you would have thought, or is it still, there's too much else going on at the moment? Yeah, my dad asked me if I had a job for life if we just kept on getting postponed, but um, (laughs) unfortunately, dad doesn't work that way. No, look, I I honestly, not really, like, it's... um, we've got a pretty big challenge ahead of us to get this Women's World Cup on and it's taking most of the time and the effort and and, and keeping that on track. But I mean, it is really exciting and it's going to be great. And it really, I think it is natural kind of as you lead up to an event, people start to think about what next. But but for me, it's not really part of my thinking. It's absolutely kind of focused on next March and getting that away. All right, we'll come back and we're going to talk uh, next about the ICC Women's Cricket World Cup, which is not too far away. Stay with us on SCNZ. You are listening to Trailblazers on SCNZ. I'm Ricky Swanell and we've been chatting with Andrea Nelson about her career as a sports administrator, which really sounds like we're sort of doing this reflective, but it is right in the thick of one of the biggest events, which is the ICC Women's Cricket World Cup, uh, to be held here in March, March, through March and April next year you've been delayed you were delayed well you'd be finished by now wouldn't you you'd be looking for a new job by now um so we have to say the c word organizing a major tournament in a pandemic (laughs) in covid it must just be mind-blowingly challenging at times yeah look it's um i did as i think i I mentioned that when i uh when i took this one on i was like i'm not sure if i can do another event because it's just doing the same thing over and over again a little bit and where am i going to grow and careful what you wish for um because it's like i don't even know if you've been to the beach when the when the tide's coming in and you're building your sandcastle but you put the bit of sand down but the beach has slightly moved a little bit and you have to start again that's sort of the process that we've been on postponed originally for a year which 
you know, it was tough when it happened, but it was the right decision to make for the sport globally, for the team, um, you know, and the opportunity it brought was really amazing. And then we were sitting pretty, really, looking at a pretty easy cruise in to a, um, to a you know, nice open zero COVID New Zealand. Um, mm. And then obviously the most recent lockdown, you know, has thrown a, a few more challenges at us. Nothing that is not overcomable. Everything can be overcome, but um, certainly a real test of everybody's resolve and you know the 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 importance of the relationships that you build in order to make a a team of many people and many organizations focus on one outcome because this event is bigger than just one women's cricket world cup it's the first of the three it's a it's our moment in that kind of global trajectory of women's sport and cricket's moment which is really significant the ICC have massively invested I think really ahead of the game and you know against most other most other big bodies in terms of, of female sport and so to do that justice is really important and um, we're really lucky that we have the kind of wholehearted support of this government um, you know they've made women's sport a priority the minister for sport Grant Robertson has made you know made it a huge priority for himself personally and and so that helps when you're trying to, you know, create real consensus and overcome some of the challenges. But um, I don't think I've ever had quite so many contingency plans <laughs> for one event. <laughs> oh, and, and as you say, you know, probably in the middle of this year, say in July, you would have thought, oh, this is, you know, we're six, eight months out. This is great. We, we're ready to roll now. Perfect. So how much has how much has had to change or how much is still sitting there waiting to possibly change um, over the next couple of months? Yeah, the biggest the biggest challenge is that certainty is a very hard thing to, mm. to get. So um, obviously the government's making huge kind of progress. We've had the reopening plan announced, the traffic light system that starts to provide a real level of certainty around the ability of the event to be delivered. Um, but you do need to be okay to live with a fair bit of grey. Um, and you know, and work towards a solution, um, and, and and that's really what we've been um, been doing, and not on our own. We're doing it in partnership with New Zealand Cricket, who are incredibly supportive, in partnership with the ICC, in partnership with government. You know, bringing all those people together to find solutions to the problems that 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 that, that pop up. Um, yeah, look, I think uh, it is it isn't your traditional event where you have one operating model and you and you you bring everyone together to deliver that. There's a, a little bit more openness around some of the uh, some of the questions of how things will work but uh it certainly makes it more challenging and more interesting <laughs> i mean the other thing too is that as well as delivering this tournament you're also leading a team right a team of all your staff and who the bulk of whom have been stuck at home working from home juggling families life desperately wanting a haircut trying to you know keep spirits up must be really challenging too yeah look i think that's where working on an event does give you a real opportunity advantage I'd say because you know we do have this really cool thing we're working together on um you know we like do have tangible. A, yeah, a tangible understandable thing we had last week um incredibly excitingly we had Amy Satterthwaite and Maya Lewis come and speak to our staff remotely you know just give and, and, and talk about Maya was talking about you know playing as she did in the late 90s and then Amy talking about her journey as, you know, a traveling mother with her partner and baby on tours and you know you, you could look around as, as you do on Zoom, sometimes you look at other people's faces, not the speaker. And I could just see my staff, were, you know, really entranced and inspired. So, you know, it is, I guess it is an advantage through that lockdown period. But um, one of the things is, is that events are done in conversations with whiteboards um, in a room solving problems. And that certainly is, you know, finding new ways of, 
of collaborating has been one of the real interesting things about this endless lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how many people, how many in New Zealand, how many in your team, the New Zealand-based events team, delivering a, a tournament like this? Yeah, so right now I actually, I checked this number the other day actually, where we've got 40 full-time staff pretty much at the moment, um, and oh. then that will grow. We had about six people start during the lockdown, which is, I mean, I do look forward to meeting them in person too. Um, yes, a friend of mine is one of them, Courtney. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and then we'll have a lot more kind of, uh, we're advertising now actually lots of roles that are more uh, short-term tournament time roles, so operations coordinators and tournament services managers. And, and then the ICC bring a big bunch of people with them as well. Um, and then each of the cricket associations provide, you know, we, we work in partnership with them. So I think overall the number of people working on the event will be sort of five, five 600 probably once you get everybody involved, at, you know, um, and plus the 750 volunteers that we have. So uh, it's quite a big, um, it's a surprising scale, the Women's Cricket World Cup, I think, People who aren't familiar with the event might not think about the fact that I think 1.1 billion people watched the final of the T20 World Cup, which is significantly more than listened to the uh, than watched the Rugby World Cup final, you know, then last year, um, more than the America's Cup. Um, you know, the, the the scale of investment in terms of how much money is spent in staging the event is really significant. Um, so, you know, it's a big, big undertaking, involves a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, have we got the, the the talent pool here? Obviously, as you say, you've got your event, the the Rugby World Cup, which is this time next year. Well, will be just about finished. The Football World Cup and, and others. Have we got those those people, that event staff, the the expertise? Yeah, look, I think New Zealand has got a really great track record of delivering major events in a really unique cool New Zealand way and um, really well-respected staff. We brought some people home from the UK to jump on this role who worked on the Men's World Cup back in 2019. I think we can right. talk about that one without crying now. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got another one to cry about now. To cry about. Right. But, um, uh, but also I think, you know, we uh, we see it as a real duty of ours to build new talent, you know, to go into those other World Cups. So we work really closely with FIFA in terms of who of our staff might be able to move on to that event and we're you know, training up and bringing new new talent into the event sector. I mean, New Zealand has consistently attracted and delivered incredible global events now since 2011, right? So, you know, it is a viable career choice for people here. And, you know, we're really, it's cool to be able to bring new people into the sector as well. So this tournament, um, I know you've got, MIQ spots for, for teams that's sorted if you need them. Hopefully, you won't even need them. Um, so what so, yeah, she, she says with her fingers crossed. Um, what 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 will this tournament in your mind, your grand vision? What will it look like? The teams on the ground and this tournament be starting in March. Yeah, look, I mean, we have always seen this as a really cool, family-friendly, relaxed event that we want to bring people to who haven't experienced necessarily cricket or women's cricket before. Um, so we're really kind of unashamedly pitching our event at some, you know, at that family market. We've got some really cool um, things we'll be announcing in the weeks ahead that's really going to kind of provide a really unique event experience. Um, and, and the thing about cricket, and, you know, particularly in these COVID times, is almost all of our venues are open grass bank venues. Mm-hmm. You know, it's safe. It's, you know, it's a nice, relaxed environment. It's an ice cream sitting on the bank while the kids run around and have a good time. You know, it's a really nice day out. And that's that kind of fun, relaxed summer festival we think New Zealand's really going to be ready for in March next year. You know, we would have had our music festivals, I'm assured. We would have had our summer of music festivals, and this is going to be the first really big global sports event post, um, you know, post this lockdown. So, 
you know, that, that, that's sort of the vision and, and that hasn't changed, um, you know, and, and we're not moving away from that in any way, shape or form. What what we are doing is a lot more planning on how we keep everyone safe, how we keep our yeah. participants safe, the public, um, how we work with the, you know, opening border policy and how that changes what we need to do. Um, but, you know, ultimately we're really focused on our tagline for our tournament is let's show them. And the whole purpose of it is to showcase these incredible athletes and this incredible game to a new audience and, you know, can't wait to crack that. Yeah. And what what difference, or if, if any difference, have you noticed this is the first time you've worked solely on a, on a women's event um, as opposed to a men's or a mix like the Olympics? Are there differences in how you've delivered it because of that? Yeah, look, I think one thing in which I touched on is that collaboration piece. I, I know that in 2015 I worked on the FIFA under-20s and the Men's Cricket World Cup was at the same time, and I think we tried to get the two trophies in a photo together, and that was like six months of negotiation. And I actually I can't remember whether we even actually succeeded in the end. I think think there were too many commercial barriers you know the cool thing about the phase of women's sport is in right now is that it's not yet as rigid as male sport and it provides more opportunity and you know we we really find um you know that 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 the the white ferns you know they're really passionate about this being a home a home tournament and you know we want to we we obviously want to treat them very fairly as we would with a male athlete but the enthusiasm and and you know passion for getting involved and doing the school visits and um, you know, that's really strong. We went up to Waitangi to launch our education program and Sophie Devine, Susie Bates and Leah Tuhu came up for that to spend the day up there launching our Te Reo and English education resources. And, you know, that that, that would be a really hard thing to pull off on a, on a men's event. Um, so that's really cool. Um, the other thing I'd say is I worked on the Women's Rugby League World Cup indirectly. There was a, an addition of that that happened in Sydney, but that was played at community grounds, free of charge, for local schools. And the thought of doing more than that back in 2017 was, you know, we, we, we felt we were being quite groundbreaking in what we did actually manage to, to roll out. So the progress that it's making, you know, our athletes will stay in four and five star accommodation. They'll, they'll fly business class. We're not the, the same, the best pitches in the country are what they're playing on. There's no, you know, out of ground stuff going on. And that's just a huge, you can take it for granted, but it's actually such a massive step forward. Um, you know? Yeah. And I mean, they're just little, little, even, I mean, flying business class is not little, but, it, you know, it's a respect thing, isn't it? And that's what you hear so, so often from from female athletes, just a little bit of equality. It's having kit that fits. It's, you know, those those equal promotional opportunities and stuff. Well, one of the things that really resonates to me is uh, there's an amazing operator, Liz, Liz Green, was Liz Perry. Uh, she's general manager of uh, Cricket Wellington, but um, she, I talked to her really early on when I when I first got the role and we were talking about toilets actually, and how um, how it's really annoying that when you're a female athlete, if you want to go play on Eden Park, there's only, there are only two cubicles. So you had to go and use the publics or you had the girls all queuing up to go in before the game or in, yeah. um, at Basin Reserve, she had to go home and have a shower because the showers were not suitable. Through the investment from Sport New Zealand, we've actually managed to upgrade all of the changing facilities at all of our venues to be female appropriate. And mm. again, like, you know, it... it all of these things you can dismiss one by one, but when you put them all together, it's a really kind of critical moment in time that we're actually delivering this stuff. And I genuinely believe by the time the FIFA World Cup wraps up in 2023, New Zealand sport will never be the same again. And, you know, the opportunity to be part of making that happen, you know, I feel like I'm going to look back at these couple of years, even with COVID, even with everything, even with homeschooling, I'm going to look back at this period and go, you know, get the same chills I get when I think, the pride that I feel about being part of London 2012, you know, and yeah. and that's a pretty cool thing to be able to to say. It, it really is, yeah. Uh, on 
with uh, on the on-field side, uh, and you mentioned back in 2017 and realising all of a sudden, oh gosh, the Kiwis are, are battling a bit. The White Ferns have had their struggles. They certainly have shown some some really good signs on that tour um, in England earlier this year, but they did struggle through the summer. Does that do, does the fate of the home team, how does that kind of factor in or does it worry or is it something that might not even have that big of an impact? You know, let's hope, and, and as I say, they're improving. Let's hope that they really can put a great showing in. Yeah, look, um, but if they don't, yeah, look, I think you know, obviously they won it back in two thousand, and 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 yeah. back in two thousand they stayed in the dorms. Actually, that's another one I yeah. find really. <laughs> they had one sponsor, and it was Crick Info, and yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, look, I think you know, talking, it is pressure on the home team, but I think one of the mm-hmm. things that's a bit different is that. This is, you know, that kind of festival thing, that family experience we were talking about. It's not all tied to the White Ferns. You know, I think the White Ferns, the success of this tournament doesn't ride entirely on their shoulders in the way that, for example, it might have felt in 2015 for the men's team. You know, it's a really great opportunity. It's a huge platform um, to build a real fan base. And I have no doubt, you know, that that team will be, you know, putting on some pretty inspirational performances next next summer. But, you know, I think um, working in events, you, you've got to think beyond the home team because it's actually not – I don't work for New Zealand cricket. I work for the Women's Cricket World Cup. And whoever's in the final, we need to create an environment where Kiwis are out supporting the teams, you know, the people – the billions of people are tuning in worldwide and seeing these amazing scenes. That's, that's my focus. Um, obviously, selfishly, I was up at 3 in the morning <laughs> watching the Black Cats and I, I will be, you know, crossing my fingers behind my back for – for Sophie and the girls, but uh, yeah, no, we're, we're about the whole event. Thank you so much. We could have chatted for, we could keep on going for a very long time, but uh, on all sorts of topics. But Andrea Nelson, all the best to you and the team uh, bringing this Cricket World Cup to us next year. And uh, thank you so much for being on Trailblazers. Cheers, Ricky.